0: Hello and welcome to Spotlight On. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today the Spotlight is on David Page and his new book, In Stores Today, Food Americana. The remarkable people and incredible stories behind America's favorite dishes. Two-time Emmy winner David Page changed the world of food television by creating, developing, and executive producing the groundbreaking show Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives. Before that, as a network news producer based in London, Frankfurt, and Budapest, he traveled Europe, Africa, and the Middle East doing two things. Covering some of the biggest stories in the world and developing a passion for some of the world's most incredible food. Creating Diner's Drive-Ins and Dives and hands-on producing its first 11 seasons took him deep into the world of American food, its vast variations, its history, its evolution, and especially the dedicated cooks and chefs keeping it vibrant. His next series, The Syndicated Beer Geeks, dove deep into the intersection of great beer and great food. It is those experiences, that education, the discovery of little-known stories and facts, that led David Page to dig even deeper and tie the strands together in Food Americana. If you're not hungry now, you will be. Enjoy our talk. Uh, where nice are today.
1: you? Yeah, likewise. I am. I'm on the Jersey Shore. I am on the uh, first sandbar north of Atlantic City. Uh, gotcha an island called long beach island. Oh sure. Which had been our summer home and then became our home home.
0: So of course I want to make sure we leave the meat of the conversation for the book which um I was about to drop a mistakenly bad pun and tell you I devoured it.
1: <laughs> well, no that's that's a good all puns
0: are good.
1: All, all puns are good.
0: Some are just less artful than others I suppose. That's okay <laughs> uh but um Before we get to that, can you tell me, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to um, escape a couple of things in your biography, one of which is, you know, sort of your early career in journalism and Mm -hmm. some of the major, um, some of the major events you were, you were witness to and that you covered. And I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about, um, not to retell a story you've told a ton of times, but tell me a little bit about your career in journalism and broadcast news, and maybe a little bit about how that experience um, informed, you know, the book and your approach as a writer. That would be
1: wonderful. Sure. Um, When I was 14, I got my first job at a little radio station. Mm. And um, it was fun spinning those discs. Uh, As time went on, I developed a love for broadcasting, but that turned into a love of journalism. Uh, I'm of a certain age, so that I was actually... Influenced by Watergate, and at my age, everyone who was a would-be journalist wanted to be Woodward or Bernstein. Um, so I worked my way up through local radio, um, got into TV in a market small enough to make that transition, which Wichita, Kansas. Um, worked my way through um, a number of local TV stations in Phoenix, Houston, and Atlanta as an investigative reporter. Um, which I kind of stumbled into because I realized that only with that job title did you get control over lengthier projects. Turned out um, I was good at it and I enjoyed it. So uh, I stayed in that sector till I was picked up by NBC as a producer, first out of Chicago, then I was sent to Europe, Um, living first in London, um, then Frankfurt, then I opened a small bureau in Budapest, Uh, ahead of the impending collapse of communism, um, which I was lucky enough to cover. I mean, in my time over there, I I was there the night the Berlin Wall opened. I I walked through it, through Checkpoint Charlie, at um, two in the morning. Um, And in fact, all of the Germans you see dancing on the wall were dancing up there because of me. I ran to the wall with a tall ladder so that my crew could get up there and shoot pictures. I was immediately assaulted, not in a bad way, but, but mobbed by a bunch of Germans who stole my ladder. And they all went up on top of the wall. You know, I, I, I covered that. I covered, um, intifadas in the middle East. I interviewed, um, uh qaddafi in the remains of his bombed out house uh after um american warplanes destroyed it i have a funny story from that uh the new york post had just put qaddafi's composite picture on the front um claiming that he liked to cross-dress according to the cia so they they mocked up a picture of him in heels and a dress And as I ended the uh, substantive part of our interview, I figured, what the hell? And I said to him, um, the New York Post, no, I I think I cited the CIA because that's who the Post was. I I told him anyway, um, they say you like to wear women's clothing, do you? And his translator gave me this look of death, like, I'm not going to say that. But, of course, Gaddafi spoke English. So he burst out laughing and then blamed the Zionist editor blah 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 but um yeah i was lucky i I was i was overseas at a time when a there was news of interest to america because let's face it america's interest in international news is only about america and once the wall fell um there was a brief period of time where news executives said great we'll cover all of europe and then they realized that the story that had been popular in Europe was, are we going to die of a nuclear holocaust? And once that imminent threat went away, nobody back home really gave a damn about the European Union Union changing milk tariffs. Um, Luckily, I had come back to the States at that point. I do want to make one point about being over there, though. When my daughter was seven or eight, I I, I had come back. I was not married when I was overseas. Um, She looked at me one day and she said, Dad, how come every time we talk about a place you talk about the food (laughs) and she was right and to this day um, the statement is correct but thinking about it it's because that is the essence of pretty much every culture every society people get together around their food I think we as a culture right now are are hurting because we can't dine together uh conversations held in in person tend to be less obnoxious than those held on twitter i mean i i literally walked into east germany east berlin the night the wall opened and yet my number one memory of east berlin before the wall opened was after you tortuously made your way through checkpoint charlie where they really did put the mirrors under your car all of that stuff the high point for me of any trip over there was was a little stand under the S-Bahn, which was an elevated subway, that sold vice-first, which for some reason I couldn't get in West Berlin. And they were fast food. They came on a little napkin with a hard roll, not not a roll split down the middle. The way the Germans ate the sausages was mustard and a hard roll and the sausage and you take a bite. But the highlight for me of East Germany was always that vice-first (laughs)
0: <laughs> and, all right, so I have to ask them, what was the highlight in West Germany?
1: Uh, the highlight in West Well, it depends what kind of food you want to eat. I mean, pure German maligned cuisine would be schnitzel yeah. with potatoes. It's, I had a guest at a, a small informal restaurant down the street from my house in Frankfurt And I would go eat there. And then I would like lie on my couch for the next 12 to 15 hours because it was greasy and it was fatty and it was was everything horrible about food. But it was incredible. On the other hand, um, I spent some time profiling Wolfram Ziebeck, who was, and this is not an oxymoron, Germany's leading food critic, who wrote for i think spiegel might have been stern he, he, he was their number one national food critic and he was on a mission to improve the taste of germans with respect to food and he was a big proponent of shall we say more refined cuisine mm-hmm. i was lucky enough to eat with him a couple of times and the food was extraordinary yeah. just phenomenal yeah
0: yeah <laughs> Pre-pandemic, were you still traveling much internationally? And and like, do you feel as though is it part of your professional life to sort of stay in tune with international cuisine or food trends?
1: I wish it were. Um, My wife and I have a daughter who's in grad school and two dogs and lives, and it's hard to get overseas. Um, we were in Spain a few years ago, actually went to a cooking class. It was fantastic. Um, that's an underappreciated cuisine. Um, and yes, we keep talking about wanting to go back over. Um, my wife and daughter have never been to Israel. We're Jewish. Um, I did a lot of work there. Uh, we had intended years ago to make a, a visit there, but, um, a, 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 period of extended violence broke out and we changed our plans. We went to, um, London and Paris, which was lovely, of course. Um, but Israel's on the bucket list. Um, I, I I'd like to go to Portugal. I, I haven't been to Portugal. I've been to Spain a lot, both working and personally. Um, and I know of the food of Portugal, but I've never been. I'd love to make I'd love to make that trip. I mean our our, our tastes in European cooking tend to be more Mediterranean, yeah, years ago. Yeah, we started in Madrid, but then we worked our way down the coast um, through Valencia, all the way down um, to the Moorish areas, uh, and and then back up. It's The food's amazing. It's just incredible.
0: Yeah. So if you can, before, we, before we, we jump deeply into the book, can you take me back a little bit further and talk about the food you grew up with and the role that food played earlier in your life?
1: Yeah, I, I grew up with terrible food. Yeah, me too. My mother was a horrible cook. One of my grandmothers was a horrible cook. My mother's mother was an excellent cook in that heavy Jewish Eastern European way. Mm -hmm. Uh, Her borscht was much better than borscht I got later in Moscow because hers was made out of actual ingredients. And in Moscow, it was um, a peasant's food of whatever you throw in. So I didn't grow up. With any sense of, um, with any refined palate, let me put it that way. Um, my parents um, thought it was a big deal to go out and have surf and turf. You know, we, we, we liked to go to restaurants, but it really wasn't until until I went to Europe that I really started to develop an appreciation. I mean, I had worked in different sections of America in broadcasting, and I had begun to develop an appreciation for regional American cooking. Uh, I was in Texas long enough to know that you should have barbecue and and Mexican food. Um, But it wasn't until I went to Europe, and I was lucky enough, uh, not just Europe, it was Europe, Africa, and the Middle East. So I I was lucky enough to begin to experience um, a variety of foods, realized um, one day uh, after I moved to Frankfurt, uh, the Bureau's favorite restaurant there was Lebanese. And I suddenly realized, oh, this stuff's great. And it was there that that I got past. I, I, I went, as many people do, with an innate fear of things like street food. Right. Um, I remember on my first assignment to Cairo, I was terrified, or better yet, on... Um, Shortly after being sent overseas, we were sent to interview Qaddafi. Uh, not Gaddafi. I'm sorry, Arafat. And um, you wait until they decide it's time to give you the audience. And then before the interview, you have to have breakfast. Now, this is like three in the morning. It's a long table full of what were at the time PLO guys. I wasn't comfortable to start with because I hadn't really yet been working much in the Middle East. And I was a New York Jew. Um, But I got called out by the guy sitting next to me for not really eating. And it was, uh, I was kind of afraid of, like, food poisoning or something. A fear that went away about 10 minutes after I'd, you know, been overseas and learned, among other things, that the safest food you can eat in a less developed country is street food that you see cooked on a flame in front of you. I, I then began to understand food as symptomatic or more emblematic of cultures and how people think and what they like, and fell in love with whatever was local from that point on. When I came back to the States, I'd been over, I don't know, six years, seven years, I realized I had been on the road so much I had never used my kitchen. Um, I I was in a German apartment for four years. Uh, in Germany, you buy your kitchen. It doesn't come with the apartment. You may buy it from the prior resident, but the counters, the cabinets and the appliances are not considered part of the apartment. I moved into a brand new apartment building. So there was nothing in the kitchen and, you know, I, I bought everything. And when I left there for Budapest, um, Many years later, I realized I'd never once cooked a thing in my house. Mm. Um, When I got back to the States after I had been assigned to Budapest and the communist revolutions, I looked around and said, you know, I'm going to try this cooking thing. And um, much to my astonishment, I liked it. And I was innately good at it, not as a chef. Chefs feel the cooking of food instinctively. Amateur cooks like myself have to keep an eye on things and cut the steak open to see if it's really ready. But I got a lot of fun out of it. Um, and from there, um, I developed an interest in American regional cooking, which culminated in uh, Diners, Remens, and Dives, obviously. Um, and I've now taken further with the book. But uh, that's a long answer to to a short question, which is, no, I did not eat well growing up. <laughs> yeah, I, I,
0: I, I say to people all the time, it's a wonder that... Um... That people of our generation, I suspect maybe I'm a, a, a little bit younger than you, but not much, that um, that we survived <laughs> given some of the food we ate. Everything was about you know packaged and canned and frozen. And yeah. um, I don't think I saw a real vegetable until I was an adult.
1: <laughs> now, I didn't realize steak was terrific and, until I had one in a restaurant. Um, my mother used to cook steak under the broiler on like a gray and white speckled pan and somehow this pool of gray viscous something would ooze onto the top of the meat and that was steak so yeah it took a while
0: (laughs) it's so funny well so something that struck me um one of the things that struck me reading your book was sort of how lucky i am And, and i'll give you some context for that i grew up outside of new haven connecticut
1: Oh, yes. And
0: I lived in, uh, New York city for the better part of 20 years. And so, so many of the cuisines you talk about, if not specific places you talk about, I realized I had the, the benefit of the food. So whether it was Mia's in new Haven or Harold's ice cream up in Northampton, uh, certainly Lombardi's. I mean, I, I, I could go through the book and I just kept saying, wow, he's right. Wow. I did. Oh yes. I did have that. Um, But it wasn't until later in the book that we got to one of the big controversies I have to ask you about. And that is Maine versus Connecticut lobster rolls. Maine. Maine. Really? Well,
1: I grew up in Western Mass. Okay. And there's never been a whole lot of love lost for some reason between Massachusetts and Connecticut. Um, And... It was many years later that I even came to understand there was a Connecticut-style lobster roll. Um, We would summer at Old Orchard Beach or um, what the hell was the lake? Anyway, Maine was um, an exotic, affordable vacation close enough to Massachusetts to, to drive and get back. And to me, the perfect lobster roll, the butter flavor comes from using the New England-style split-top bun, where instead of crust, you have exposed bread on each side. The key to any dish, in my view, is balance. And there's not enough variety of flavor, in my view, in a Connecticut lobster roll, which, for the sake of the listeners, a Maine lobster roll is chilled. Um, It's lobster salad, if done right, with very little mayonnaise, and the butter is on the outside of the bun. A uh, Connecticut lobster roll is warm lobster with a ton of warm butter on it. Now, let's be clear there's nothing wrong at all with warm lobster in butter. Um, <laughs> that's what I eat when I make a live lobster, but it doesn't have the construct. I mean, a sandwich is more than just putting a substance on top of bread. It's creating the proper balance of flavor. And I don't find enough to balance. I don't see any need for the bread in a Connecticut-style lobster roll. A Maine lobster roll, done right, which means with very little added to it. I'm not a fan of crunchy stuff in my lobster rolls. Some people are. I'm not a fan of tarragon in my lobster roll. Some people are. The, the balance in the proper main lobster roll is just enough mayo, just enough lobster compared to the bun. And These overstuffed rolls, in my mind, don't, don't make any sense. And then the flavor of the butter. So, yes, there is, by the way, there is no doubt about that. There's no question about that. Anyone who disagrees with me is wrong.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, let me ask you. Let's stay on lobster rolls for one second. Um, okay. You articulated a pretty specific sort of uh, combination of ingredients, um, and I appreciate that because I, I tend to I tend to favor bare minimum ingredients as well. Like I'm not really big on. I'm not so sure I want much green in my lobster roll.
1: No, 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 none.
0: Yeah, no celery, no lettuce. No. Uh, I find the lettuce particularly in the front.
1: Well, the Um, lettuce is a filler. The lettuce is to take your mind off the fact you're not getting a lot of lobster. (laughs) Yeah, fair, fair. Um, The lobster roll that started the national craze was created by Rebecca Charles at Pearl's in New York. Not as the main item on a menu. I mean, this was... um, One of many items, she was building a menu, she needed some sandwiches, so she came up with a lobster roll. Hers is incredibly basic. I mean, it's basically lobster and mayonnaise. And the question is, how much mayonnaise? Um, She actually uses more than I would because that's what the customer wants. But to my mind, you can put a little celery salt on if you want, but this is simply supposed to heighten and brighten the taste of the lobster as it is um eaten with the butter covered bread Uh, i don't i don't like a lot of stuff in lobster rolls
0: fair fair i yeah See, so clearly i've tipped my hand i'm a connecticut lobster roll person
1: clearly shamefully
0: (laughs) you know you can't escape what you're brought up with to a certain extent like that's you know that's my image of a lobster roll but with that said, I fully appreciate the the problem the butter presents. And too much butter, you know, it can be very sinful and decadent, but it is wrong. It's wrong. Um, it is. But a little bit of butter with a little hit of the celery salt, as long as you're not destroying the bun. That, to me, is the litmus test. If the bun falls apart, you've overdone it with butter. At that point, it's too late to do anything about it. Um but you are
1: forced to eat a hunk of lobster covered in butter (laughs) but hey everything has its price
0: exactly exactly you know another thing that impressed me uh about the book i mean first of all you start off you you jump right into the deep end with pizza like you know if you're gonna but you didn't court controversy and i'm really impressed by that because to me pizza is it's a it's a it's a controversial topic where I'm from and it's all, it's almost as controversial as Yankees or Red Sox. And, um, you know, being a new Havener, um, pizza is a tough one. You enlightened me to the Detroit pizza craze, which I'm going to have to go back and learn a little more about, but, um, I'm currently just South of Seattle and I moved here straight from New York city. And so what's your pizza? Uh, it, it, it's, it was heartbreaking my first couple of years here, but my son and I found a place um, just south of, Seattle. you know, what passed for, Seattle, for pizza out here has been mainly sort of the gourmet pizza, right? The, you know, right. The, the real thin, you know, the, the more, the, the,
1: the West Coast Wolfgang. Well, pizza. you're full of salmon out there, so I'm sure you did something with it.
0: Yeah, and, and there's, and there are actually, there, there's, a, there's an Italian heritage um, in the south end of Seattle and just south mm-hmm. of Seattle. A lot of farmers, a lot of Italians settled out here. In fact, the first neighborhood we lived in, the nickname was Garlic Gulch. all right so um but we did find a pizza place um that's i think it's on its second or third generation and they make what i would call a new york or a brooklyn pizza it's 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 actually we don't need an asterisk when we eat that pizza it's like this is as good as a slice we could get back home
1: and well that that's saying a lot but understand something even bad pizza is good now i tend not to include delivery chains but I I live um, on a little island in South Jersey where it ain't that far to really, really good pizza. Mm -hmm. The place on my island doesn't make really, really good pizza. They make generic pizza, but they deliver at eight at night, um, and it's fine. Pizza needs to be judged on a sliding scale. My expectation for that pizza is it's going to be perfectly adequate and the sauce won't be too sweet. Is it the pizza I could get at the Star Tavern um, 80 minutes away? Of course not. That's one of the great pizzas on earth. But uh, some special, I mean, pizza is just a great thing. Yeah, just a wonderful thing, and it's so different here from pizza in Italy. Um, I mean, most people who have uh pizza Napolitano here aren't really because pizza Napolitano done properly is soupy, and Americans don't like that. It's uh, what they're getting is a crispier, more structured version of those ingredients. But that's not what you get in Italy. I mean, who knows what you get today? I I literally haven't been back to Italy in a long time, and there may be some Americanization available. But no, what's interesting is that there are 30 or more kinds of American pizza now. It's a perfect example of how we take other countries' foods and make an American um, cuisine. The fact that our pizza is not like pizza in Italy is irrelevant. We have created American pizza as a cuisine of its own, and um, that's perfectly wonderful. There's nothing wrong with that. Have you ever had Old Forge, uh, old, uh, old Forge pizza? Um, it's it's from a small town, Old Forge, Pennsylvania, which calls itself the pizza capital of the world. <laughs> One of many. It's a, yeah, it's a it's a small town. That invented a form of um, rectangular pizza years ago to feed the coal miners. It's it's bizarre. It uses processed American style cheeses. One version of it is red sauce on top of the cheese. One version is white. It's basically pizza stuffed with processed cheese. It's fantastic. It's wow. incredible. Is it the pizza anyone I know grew up with? Absolutely not. But it's just I order it on Goldbelly now.
0: Well, I'm so glad to hear you mention Goldbelly. So, uh actually let's come back to that in a second. So, um I think the one of the one of the things that that you draw into relief there though is again that pizza, the old forge pizza must be so comforting if you're from anywhere near that area. Like that's the pizza you right. grew up with. That's your that's your image of pizza. But your your book reminded me of something I haven't thought about in years, which was Greek pizza. Greek pizza actually has mm-hmm. pretty big um, presence in New Haven. Really? Yeah, people are often surprised to to hear.
1: Um, well, when you grew up with Greek pizza, what what was on it?
0: Well, I, all right. So this is a very personal question. I have I, I have sort of a policy when it comes to a new pizza place, um, mm-hmm. which is. I get just a cheese pizza. like that's the level set. So I have to go in. I will not have anything else until i until your cheese pizza is past my litmus test. For many places, I never get past the cheese pizza because I like it so much, mm-hmm. even though other things on the menu beckon me, I want your cheese pizza now. so i I, I pretty much in most cases i'll I'll, I'll veer towards eggplant sometimes, sliced <laughs> thin and breaded, but i'm a, I'm generally a cheese pizza guy. like that's sort of where I start and finish.
1: Well, the whole idea of the pizza, just topped with everything under the sun, is completely American. P- pizza in Italy is much simpler. Yeah, than more it is more. <laughs> yeah, that's the concept here of of adding and adding and adding. I understand one thing, by the way, and one of the reasons American Italian food in general is abundant, um, large portions with a lot of things. Is because the poor Sicilians who emigrated here were stunned at the fact that even in poverty they could afford meat now and then. Yeah. the The availability of food products quickly turned Italian American cooking um, much more um, well. The, the Italian term would be abbondanza, you know, much, m- much more of a mountain of food than anyone ever ate back home
0: yeah yeah um all right so gold belly not to turn this into an advertisement for them but yeah so i moved to seattle and it didn't take long to start craving a bagel Mm because let me tell you despite what anybody said i'm just i I, there's no bagels out here that i'm that i'm willing to call a bagel and uh gold belly arrives and h&h bagels and essa bagels all of a sudden become available um and so I had to wean my, I had to slow down actually, (laughs) but the the, first one's free. Yeah. The amazing thing about gold belly is that it's, it's really not that expensive. Like I would probably pay two or three times the price for a dozen bagels when I really want a bagel. Um, but, um, but yeah, it's an incredibly, it's an incredible, it's, it's one of the wonders of the modern world that I can get, uh, that I can get bagels out here. Um, but I, I wonder, um, you know, it's again, so many people talk about the 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 New York bagel versus other parts of the country. You know, being from Connecticut, I had a front row seat for sort of the explosion of lenders. You know, they were right. they were my first interaction with bagels as as a kid growing up in the 70s and 80s. And, um, you know, h- how do you feel about that sort of dispersion of regional food?
1: The idea I am. That- I'm strongly of two minds I, to, to use the hilarious old quote I feel strongly both ways Mm. on the one hand I'm old enough to remember when Coors beer was decidedly unavailable east of the Rockies that's right and the opportunity to get your hands on a Coors was something special now in later years um I've come to the conclusion it's a horrible beer but, but be that as it may um I think there's something special about regional food being available regionally now that ship has sailed so it's not like i'm hanging on at the dock but it used to mean a lot that you couldn't get a lobster that that if you were going to maine you were looking forward to maine lobster and if if you were going to north carolina you were looking forward to a specific barbecue sauce and that it was going to be on pork And that if you went to central Texas, not all of Texas, because Texas is not entirely beef, but if you went to central Texas, you were gonna get beef brisket. The fact of the matter is there's now um, what, I believe it's John Shelton Reed calls the international house of barbecue, where you can get any kind of barbecue anywhere. Uh, A great example of a place that does that well is Smoke in Chicago. They've got Memphis ribs and they've got um, Texas brisket. And I think since it's inevitable and since this allows people to taste things they otherwise would not be able to taste, I guess it's a good thing if it's done well. Um, Part of me that is stuck in the past mourns the loss of true regionality, but that same part of me should mourn the fact that due to popular demand, we have strawberries all year round.
0: Yeah.
1: As Ruth Rachel said to me about the lobster roll, she said having a lobster roll outside of Maine is like having a strawberry outside of season. But you know what? As a culture, we demand strawberries all year round. We We demand avocados. We have become a society that expects to get anything and everything. My fear about the loss of regionality is that the farther you get from the source, the less authentic the meal becomes. I've been at Louis Miller's barbecue at three in the morning, watching them start the fire. And I watched the current owner is Wayne Miller. I watched his father, Bobby just reach over in the middle of an interview and move a couple of briskets around to parts of the smoker that presumably had different heat. And when asked why he did that, he just said it was time. Now I'm not going to get that brisket in Cleveland. Um, I'm probably going to get a real good brisket in Cleveland. If somebody, I mean, Michael Simon's got a barbecue restaurant there. Um, Michael Simon's a hell of a chef. I'm sure. I'm sure it's excellent food but I, I do futilely bemoan the progress that has brought regional foods national yeah yeah
0: yeah it's hard to i i i completely hear you it's hard to be sort of the old man screaming at the future to get off his lawn uh it's not a great yeah. it's not a great way to be um but you're right there is there is definitely there's definitely something, even even in the Gold Belly experience, right? Like I, I know I'm getting the h h bagel, but it's not the same as rolling up at 7.30 in the morning and getting one that's still warm and crispy on the outside. And there's something law It scratches the itch. It's your 8 o'clock pizza delivery. It's pizza really? at 8 o'clock. You're happy. It's comforting. But it might be worth getting in the car and driving up
1: 95
0: to, <laughs> to New well, Haven. I, and <laughs> I
1: live in an area that produces terrific oysters Mm. and there are people who know how to fry them very well and in south jersey you can even get very good bread but it ain't a a po' boy the way i would get it at guys in new orleans on leidenheimer's bread made with a local oyster which by the way has less oyster flavor than the oysters i get out of the delaware bay but I've never had a po' boy as good as I have in New Orleans. Yeah.
0: Um, I thought I knew oysters. And then I came out to the Pacific Northwest. And <laughs> the oysters are revelatory. There's um, an area called Hama Hama uh, in Hood Canal that, I mean, the oyster, I, I would I would be willing to risk mercury poisoning <laughs> if it meant I could eat those, those oysters all the time. And there's this one. Little, uh, they're they're oyster farmers, and they also operate a roadside, more than a shack, but smaller than a restaurant. Oh, Um, and uh, and there's mounds of shells everywhere, and you can get your oysters raw, or they have a couple of different sauces, and they grill them, and you know you just order by the. Yeah, see,
1: I'm of again, I'm of two minds on grilling an oyster. I'm even of a third mind. I mean, as long as you grill it. Without doing anything to it, maybe a little butter, I'm okay. But I remember we were shooting a piece about oyster farmers in Northern California, in one of the two bays that is legendary for the quality of the oysters. And we were staying at sort of a bed and breakfasty place right on the water. And their specialty was barbecued oysters with a sauce. Yeah. They they were so cavalier about having access to some of the greatest oysters I've ever tasted that their specialty was hiding the flavor under something else. I, and I thought to myself, you guys are nuts.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's exactly what it is. I think when you have such abundance, the inclination is to experiment. You can't leave yeah. well enough alone. Um, and I'm just happy to be the beneficiary of some of that. <laughs> it's, it's a wonderful yeah, thing. Yeah, some
1: of it's fine. But I got to tell you, those oysters are... If you're the world is either an oyster, oyster lovers or not oyster lovers. Right. I mean, it's it's a there's not a lot of middle ground on oysters. But if you are an oyster lover, the the variety and the specificity, the word they have not been able to make America use uh, as a takeoff on Terroir, the marroir of oysters, is a stunningly wonderful thing. Yeah. It's just special. Yeah, yeah.
0: One of the one of the more interesting things I experienced out here with oysters was uh um so I, I stopped drinking a couple of years ago, but before that, um I went to a uh, to a demonstration and tasting of oyster. It was pairing night of oysters and different scotches. Whoa. And and it was the all the all the different uh, all the different liquors had been cured near the ocean. And so there was this sense that, and some of them on ships, the barrels were aged on ships. And so the mixture of the scotch with the oyster oftentimes dripped into the oyster. Oh. It, it was uh, it was sublime. and I highly recommend it to anyone who who still partakes. Um, really incredible, really well,
1: incredible. I did the series I did after diners was beer geeks. It was right. a syndicated series about craft beer. And I learned a tremendous amount about the pairing of beer and oysters, which can be a very sophisticated undertaking, um, sophisticated beyond my knowledge. But I was glad to have my host, who was a um, big time brewer, say to me, try this together. Oh, it's wonderful. it's
0: wonderful. Anything that stands out for that? Any pairings that stand out for it? Yeah, for I, I've,
1: um, for a for a significant oyster for, for like, um, to use a terrible term that's generic as hell, but for a blue point, mm-hmm. for example, um, a, um, a milk stout is just a wonderful way to go. Just a wow. wonderful way to go. Wow. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and interestingly enough, a number of oysters paired very well with, um, Belgian triples. Now, after a glass of triple, you probably don't remember much, but <laughs> um, that, that, that was a nice way to go also. after when I say go, I mean notes. go, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's amazing. Um, so I have to ask as we, as we start to, uh, to wind down, um, can you talk to me a little bit about, I, there's two questions, sort of similar. Okay. One, peak dining experience, if you can isolate one. Mm-hmm. And two, Uh, bucket list meal?
1: Peak dining is easier than bucket list. Um, Peak dining was probably, I do not remember the name of the restaurant. I do not remember the American who owned it, but we were in Luxembourg shooting a piece. We had been asked to do the the, NATO summit was coming and You always do a piece uh, ahead of the NATO summit that is boring as hell and that no one wants to watch. So I said to my correspondent, uh, I said, let's let's do NATO differently this year. What's the smallest army in NATO? Turned out to be Luxembourg. They had 600 soldiers. They were so small, they didn't have a general. The guy in charge was the colonel. And the defense minister was also the agriculture minister. So among other things, we spent the day with him on a float in a parade as he threw little cartons of milk to the adoring crowd. And of course, we went to the very moving American military cemetery where so many dead Americans were buried. And in fact, that's where Patton was buried after ignominiously dying in an auto accident. Yeah, um, and it was interesting too uh, i digress but i was stunned in talking about nato unity to hear a bunch of luxemburgers remember world war ii and say i'll never trust the germans anyway it turned out to be a very very long day of shooting and we were dead it was me um my crew was an american and a german my correspondent was american mike betcher one of the best and um it's late, and we're literally, we're covered with dirt. I don't know why. We're driving down the road, and we, we see what looks sort of like a castle or something, but it's a restaurant. So we figure, what the hell, it's us dinner. We stop in, at which point I realize we are dramatically underdressed for a European restaurant of the highest order. And yet they, they gladly seat us. And the owner comes out and explains that he's from America, I think Tucson, I'm not sure. And he proceeds to make us one of the finest meal, maybe the finest meal I've ever had in my life with his own branded champagne and talking about the States and Europe and why he was here. And again, when you say great meal, it's gotta be great food, but it also has to be a great experience. And it was just at the end of a long, hard day of work it was just a delight, and the food was incredible. I cannot remember any individual dish. I just know the food was astonishing, and so yeah, that was probably peak dining.
0: Yeah, That's
1: the, funny. the I, other I, the other peak dining is on the streets in Cairo, um, where oh, all sorts man. of stuff comes off a fire, and it's just amazing. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: You know, I, I I can't remember the meals I had in luxembourg i I, it's funny i have a similar experience to you not necessarily a peak dining experience but i can remember the atmosphere and i can even remember sort of sitting outside in that plaza square Mm -hmm. better than i can remember in luxembourg city yeah 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 yeah. better than i can remember the food itself but i remember the experience just being delightful Um, And it doesn't surprise me that I'm actually surprised they had 600 people in their (laughs) in their army that it was that many. (laughs) But
1: but, but being on the float with the defense minister as he threw those, you know, the little cartons of milk you got in grade school, he was flinging them to the audience. It was it was wonderful Uh, Uh, because, look, TV is best when you can tell a broader story microcosmically. And quite by accident, we had stumbled into the ultimate microcosm for the fractions of the NATO alliance, um, as told through milk cartons.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and do you uh, do you want to give me a bucket list?
1: Um, probably. Um, well, I guess it's closed now, hasn't it, El Bulli? Mm. Um, one one of the. I would like to try one of the top of the 50 best restaurant lists, restaurants that you can't get into. Um, Not Noma, because I really don't want to eat ferns, but one of the Spanish or Italian guys, um, where it appears that they are making both molecular and edible food at the same time. Um, I had a meal at Alinea in Chicago once. And, and I'm, I'm not a I never a fan. made it
0: there.
1: Yeah, well, I, this was wonderful. We were talking about doing a show with them, so we were guests of mm-hmm. the chef. <laughs> That's a nice experience. Um, what I liked about Alinea was that while it was um, molecular and bizarre, there was enough actual food to enjoy your meal. In fact, in the middle of it, in the middle of these bizarre creations, one of the courses is a traditional plate of Escoffier beef, just to prove to you that Picasso could also paint portraits. That's amazing. Yeah, That's it a- was uh, was pretty nice.
0: Yeah, I've been frequently curious about that, actually. So thank you for for sharing that anecdote, because I've always wondered, having not had the experience, it's hard not to it's hard not to be slightly dismissive of the of the theater of it or the the pretense of it. Oh,
1: I'll, I'll be dismissive of, of a place everyone loves. I took my wife, took, like it's 1950 and I'm paying. <laughs> my wife and I went to 11 Madison Park for our 20th anniversary. And it's an excellent restaurant. I love 11 Madison. Um, <laughs> I don't mean to defame them, but I was totally disappointed. Um, Nothing about that meal made my heart sing, as opposed to Alinea or Guy Savoie, three stars in Paris, two stars in, of all places, Vegas. I am not a fan of dining in Vegas, but we were there um, pitching a business concept to MGM with an agent, and the agent said, let me take you to dinner, and he was paying and we had a tasting menu with a wine pairing at Savoie that was to die for it was fabulous the bill was like 1800 before tip i would gladly for the once in a lifetime experience pay that bill my bill at 11 madison park was like a thousand and i didn't feel not to defame an excellent restaurant it didn't feel like the thousand dollar meal to me. The, the meal that we had at Alinea, had we been charged for it, would have been like eight hundred for two people. If you're talking about stupidly expensive meals, which is a completely separate category and not essential to life, that was well worth it. There are, you know, it's like Pete Wells, the New York Times critic, rates restaurants against their category, not against other yeah, yeah. Uh, he doesn't put 11 Madison park up against the Beardia truck in Queens. He puts the Beardia truck in Queens up against what Beardia should be. You can get three stars as a beardier truck. Um, I think there's a huge range of these ridiculously expensive restaurants. Some are actually worth it. If the money's not going to hurt you. And if you want to go out once every 10 years.
0: Yeah. I it's interesting. You say that about 11 Madison. I, I, I enjoyed the meals I've had there, but I had my, my sort of, oh yeah, not, not to defame, but my sort of disappointing meal was at Danielle. Um, and I think, yeah. And I think, you know, I think part of it was, um, I think we were too self-conscious and, you know, they, they have that sitting area. They they put us, you, you know, clearly we walk in as the, off the turnip truck, I think. Right. And they seat you in the middle as opposed to getting one of the nice little quiet Warrens right, right. along the, the outside. And it was just a very self-conscious experience. Very hard to, it, very hard to, to, to sort of, um, to visit that world. Right. It's not a welcoming experience. I well, didn't Dan- find it to
1: be. Danielle is a very good restaurant. Um, I've had a good meal there. I have never danced my way out that door going, um, hear ye, hear ye. Um, and I think part of it may also be the style of service. It's too French. Yeah. Um, as opposed to, for example, at Guy Savoie, the server was extremely friendly. He did not cross any lines. He didn't say, hi, I'm buddy, I'll be your waiter today. But it was comfortable. And one of the difficulties people have with a lot of these super special dining experiences is that it seems the proprietors go out of their way to make you uncomfortable as if you're not worthy. I mean, the entire food culture of the United States having grown chef centric as opposed to front of the house centric, much of it has been built on intimidating the the diner, um, a a trend I deeply dislike. Um, Then again, I spend most of my time looking for, much cheaper food made yeah. by mom and pop. I mean, had I not mentioned the um, fifty best restaurants list when you asked for my bucket list, I'd have probably said Louis Miller's barbecue for a slice of brisket and um, a piece of sausage. Yeah, that's so, right.
0: That's right. I think that you know, for me, the, the the expensive meals I've enjoyed the most, like the the sort of ridiculous, you know, two people for. Five eight thousand yeah. dollars 4 people for a couple grand. It, for me, it's almost always sushi, and it's almost always um, a very fine omakase. Um, that's sort of the that that to me is where I, I like to spend if I'm going to. Of course, it's always slightly more delicious when somebody else is picking up the tab. Although I don't mind once in a while being the guy who's treating if I can. Um, but I, I think I think something you've danced around a little bit that I I, I want to say I agree with you on is this notion of. Like street food or peasant food or like family mm-hmm. style food, like there when, when when New York first introduced the food grading system with the letters mm-hmm. in the window, I always said, "I, I want like the B plus place i want the I want the place where there's just a little bit of like funk, yeah yeah <laughs> you know, yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. it's too clean, like I'm missing something. I, there's got to be something left over on the knife from the last thing he cut to get into the next day., I mean, whatever it is, you know
1: <laughs> no, you're talking about the purity of real people making real food. And I know that sounds like a slogan, but it's not. Um, You know, I mentioned a place in in my book, La Bamba Mexican Restaurant on Long Beach Island, which makes perfectly acceptable everyday Mexican-American food and then makes the mole Mm -hmm. that the, there's a couple that owns it, that her mother made in Puebla. That is cooking <laughs> that's food that's that's i'll 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 wait for that that that's good stuff
0: yeah that's amazing well um David, thank you so much for your time and thank you for the book I think it's a great it's a great entry into the the canon of American food I think it's gonna help people contextualize a lot of the foods they eat without even necessarily thinking twice about what it is they're eating or the or the cultural history of it, or how something like sushi or the bagel or Mexican food or Chinese food um, became American staples. So I, I think it's a great service. Thank you for that as
1: well. Thank you for those kind words and for taking the time.
0: Thank you so much, David Page. Thank you, Aunt Taylor and the team at Light. And as always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On. Get and share all of our past episodes, write a review, even send us a message through our website, spotlightonpodcast.com. Join us again next week. In the meantime, be safe and stay in touch.